0: Gad Kainar Kissinger, Recording for the Poetry Blog I start with a poem. To my kindred poets, On days such as these, If I am to write a poem, It's only under the condition That I can swap places with a condemned, The noose already around my neck That's about to be broken, And I am to declare my final wish, which is my poem, the one and only, the thread by which my life hangs. Question. What is poetry? Answer. First things first, thank you for inviting me. And I apologize in advance for my poor English. I'm not a native speaker. Tough luck. You ask, what is poetry? I wanted to answer that if you know, please tell me, since in contrast to all the smart Alex quoted in the internet, I cannot describe something as abstract, whimsical, unexpected, the breeze of fresh air, the smell of a lily growing in a heap of dung, the feel of your mother's skinny arm as she breathes her last breath. The only one who said something genuine that appealed to me about poetry was the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who claimed that poets are shameless with their experiences, they exploit them. I would add that they don't necessarily feel bad about it. In good poetry, the shittiest experiences are turned into beauty, which does not imply pretty, romantic, solacing beauty. It might be cruel beauty, tragic beauty, abject beauty, painful beauty. Surgery is not a nice experience. It involves blood, fatal risks, but it is a therapeutic process without which the patient might die, which means I will. The Poet's Fatigue I plead my immense fatigue to subdue me like the dragon beseeching St. George to grow from his fertilized, defeated body, a kingdom on the banks of the Lether River. And graceful, oblivion models will trot alongside it, adorning a wreath of witless smiles. The Course of Poetry Poetry begins suddenly like a desperate fight for the life of a clinically dead. Suddenly they stop torturing him with electric shocks and astounding images straight into the naked heart, the gaping feelings, the exposed breasts in front of the curious neighbours. Poetry recommences suddenly when they gather with laborious hush, the torture instruments, like small children gathering twigs for an auto da fe. Then erupts a wondrous symphony of gathering the tools and arranging the limbs under the sheet and the sowing of subdued whimper and the crescendo closing of the ambulance doors. And then poetry tides when swarms of poets emerge from their holes, sharpen their canning tooth, wound with the spears of their nails the asphalt of the orphaned road, and lick from the pool of blood, a feast for many a poem. Question. How does a poem begin for you with an idea, a form, or an image? Answer. With an idea, a form, an image, an association, a suppressed secret, the creaking of the furniture at night, the warmth of the sofa on which my love was sitting, a crumpled bed sheet, The squealing of a car tires, when it stops harshly after hitting a child, his pool of blood, you name it. And having said that much, none of these. A poem begins when it begins. To turn T.S. Eliot upside down, this is the way a poem begins, not with a bang, but a whimper. The next poem began from watching my wife sleep. Beauty, a sonnet, sans one line. I fail to illustrate your beauty with my words, as a restorer of a masterpiece, whose brush falters when it must touch the unparalleled Virgin Mary, devoured by time in the darkness of the peace, or by the sun that pinks the sky after it has long since set into its womb. I fail to find the voice, to whimper again. I read the whole poem again. Beauty, a song... again. Beauty, a sonnet, sounds one line. I fail to illustrate your beauty with my words is a restorer of a masterpiece whose brush falters when it must touch the unparalleled Virgin Mary, devoured by time in the darkness of the peace, or by the sun that pinks a sky after it has long since set into its womb. I fail to find the voice to whisper "You beauty like my foot so careful not to trample on a bed of withered leaves of such intoxicating color in the blackest, darkest forest, just before the woodcutter. Question. What inspired you to write Rescue Mission? Answer. Nothing. I didn't write it as a book. It is a collection of poems written over a year. The name and some of the poems were inspired by the epidemic. In brackets, why do they call COVID-19 an epidemic? For me, it is a plague like medieval plagues, like black measles, like leprosy. Then corpses lay around in the street as in Boccaccio's Cameroon. Today, they lie gaping for air and die alone in hospital wards, where no relative is allowed to comfort them in contrast to the benign days of Boccaccio. Such situations as closure and infectious diseases are a blessing for a poet. You enjoy the blessing of solitude and silence to write, and the apocalyptic ambiance is a great inspiration source. Rescue mission, like a sound sensor, attached to a slab of cement, of a collapsed palace, to pick up the faint bleeds of survivors. I concentrate my gaze at your pupils, to pick up distant echoes of our former love. And my hand, wandering through your black tresses and through the dark channels of your furrows, advances with a delicate, watchful choreography of brain and heart surgeons, lest other stories crash on top of us and let our souls die with the years. Question. Tell us about the process for creating the cover of the book. Answer: Thank you for this interesting question. I found, don't know where, the image of a black silhouette of a person standing on a tightrope or, if you like, Charon, the mythical boatman transporting the dead to Hades, the next world. I found, them, found it very appealing. Another association were these dark thoughts lurking in our subconscious and nurture poetry. All of these metaphors coincided with my bent for existential danger and playing with death. Through the vertical, instead of the usual horizontal setting of the script on the cover, I wanted to arouse a kind of creepy, estranging feeling that corresponds with the texts. The red and white colors of the background were intended to contrast and highlight that silhouetted person in its precarious posture. Kamikaze Under my bed... I hoard a collection of fears to feed my nightly terrors. And on horror arid nights I scare myself like an old-fashioned locomotive stoker that if the coal runs out, he picks himself up with his shovel and hurls into the fire to make the train speed forward and crash into the station. A literary scholar vacations in corinth the inspired winds of corinth wreak havoc on his hair whitewashed like medea's house sealed shut but for the slaughter chamber which jason rents out as a bungalow for classic greek literature scholars the pamphlet offers a vegan menu of sun seeds and an entertaining computer game for the kids, a ride to the sun and back in luxurious urns. Question. What uh, did you learn when writing this book? Any surprises? One thing for sure that I learned from the process of preparing this book and conceiving some of the poems was to find out how much I loved my mother, with whom I had a very complicated relationship. She died three months before the breakout of the pandemic, luckily enough for her, since with her sombre, pessimistic nature she would have gone out of her mind. She was a Holocaust survivor of a special kind, what I call cultural Holocaust. Even though she came to Palestine slash Israel in 1939, Six months before the Second World War broke out, she and her parents never overcame the loss of their great mid-European culture and continued to speak German, a forbidden language in Israel of the 1940s and 1950s, for obvious reasons. I wrote a poem that hasn't yet been translated into English. How as a young child I used to bite into her arm and tattoo her, like the numbers they tattooed in the concentration camps, whenever she dared to speak German to me on the street. Her disciplinary middle-class mentality led to many conflicts between us, yet in her last days, already very six at 97, we got closer than ever. And I admitted it to myself through, for instance, the next poem. In the language of pain, to mother in memory. You are laced in your robe like a brittle, yellowing scroll, summarizing the history of your misery. The chapters are meticulously laid out in the furrows of your brow. You were always calculated, everything filed and erased, every load of, including me. We sit across from each other like two worn-out army generals about to sign a historic peace treaty. On your shriveled cheek, I seek the line where the deal will be sealed with my kiss and try to decipher how to pronounce a word love in the language of pain, if at all. Question Where does this book fit into your career as a writer? (laughs) Answer, I don't think about poetry, writing, and achievers terms such as uh, career. I dare say that I think that this book is somewhat of a breakthrough for for self-consciousness, coming to terms with the years, making peace with my relatives, gleaning satisfaction from my current condition d'être, regarding life as being hybrid, self-contradicting, ironical, stop being sentimental about it and self-pitying myself and starting to laugh at it all, to borrow a phrase from my mentor, Leonard Cohen. Go to what's permissible to you. Go to what's permissible to you. Search the book of laws, consider bypasses with doctors. Little loopholes are still reserved for the rat, the jacko, and your age group. A woman's photo exposes itself to you, and in your eyes cements Medusa's gaze. A little drop of ice-cold water trickles down the shoulder of a perky girl as she gets out of the pool. A sweet world inside a crystal, a molecule of innocence. The white corpse of a poem lays upon a pale sidewalk in front of an elementary school. That poem is you. The children tremble all over you, but in your earpiece still resound the pleasing sounds enslaved to your ear like hourly serfs. So, go to what's permissible to you, to the doctors. Ask for bypasses for your heart. You are now permitted to do so. Anyhow. On the crosses of three roads, your son awaits to kill you. It's what's permissible to him. Question. If you had to convince a friend or colleague to read Rescue Mission, what might you tell them? Answer. <laughs> I wouldn't tell them anything. I'll do them a favor by giving them my book for free, and I'd prefer that they buy it. If I had to convince them, then I'm a failure. They should be more interested than me to read my book, since this is not the first time that they encounter my poems. The famous poet Johann Wolfgang von Goethe said that if a German poet feels that he's understood, then he is a failure. I wouldn't go so far, but for myself, I understand his words as implying that if you stoop so low as to convince someone to read, which means if you have to explain and excuse yourself in order to gratify a reader, then let poetry go. There are easier ways to make a living. Question. What was an early experience where you learned that poetic language uh, had power? Answer. There was no such specific experience that I recall. No girl ever fell in love with me because of my words, rather because of my voice while I read uh, the poems. And I couldn't put a spell on someone that I hated through them. It is more like, uh, let's say, discovering sex, the potency of your body to make somebody else and yourself happy. I mean, just like sex, poetry is an act of love and violence at the same time on the thematic and formal levels alike. Being, from the start, a timid, obedient, goody-goody boy, poetry was and is, for me, a weapon, my way to revolt, to express subversive thoughts about myself, my parents, my children, society, and so on, without really hurting people by trying to hurt them within myself, without being dragged to court. I was often grateful that my parents' command of Hebrew, the language in which I write, is so poor that they couldn't really understand what I write. Poetry is love, rebellion, and incest alike. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. These famous rebellious words by Dylan Tomans refer also, from my point viewpoint, to that good morning, or the kindling of the light. Hear this poem. Freedom a manifesto to my do again. Freedom a manifesto to my longtime partner in News County, Doctor Chaim Nagid. Do the right thing. Don't be tempted by the charms of obligation. No man is obliged to oblige. So said Lessing of all people, a man of the Enlightenment, who told us life itself is not enough, that one must conquer the heart's desire to enslave ourself to the moloch of obligation, to pierce our ear to its doorstep, to account rather than count the laughter of children aimed at us, to cordially ignore the flowers blushing at us, to keep the books on the dew, conclude, beware of the border herd, Heard. Sorry, I start from the beginning of the poem. Freedom, a manifesto to my longtime partner in Meuse County, Dr. Chaim Nagid. Do the right thing. Don't be tempted by the charms of obligation. No man is obliged to oblige, so said Lessing of all people, a man of the Enlightenment, who taught us life itself is not enough. That one must conquer the heart's desire to enslave ourselves to the Moloch of obligation, to pierce our ear to its doorstep, to account rather than count the laughter of children aimed at us, to cordially ignore the flowers blushing at us, to keep the books on the do conclude. Beware of the board ahead, of the firing squad on the other side of the deadline. Control the herds of your actions on your schedule so that no bellwether stops to stare and dream. Don't step out to your yard at midnight to howl with the jackals. Don't get carried away, God forbid, and burn your place down. And with it, all your inheritance, your heirs, yourself, to rejoice like Nero in front of the flames and recite poetry. The range of our voice is enormous. So once told me a vocal coach whose facial wrinkles to me were like the war paint of the Navajo tribe, and in his voice echoed the buffalo drums and the stampede of the beastly herd. We use only one-tenth of it, too anxious to break through the coral fence, too scared to scare and to be scared and to plummet down the breathtaking abyss that will gape inside us. Therefore, do the right thing scream wake up the neighbors curse wisdom go on staycation don't take anything with you not even the cloth on your back remove your skin from off your bones fear not to penetrate the throat of an active volcano trap yourself a venomous viper for a pet and let it slither down the parlours of your brain. Let your children out naked. Don't mould them into bronze statues of ancient Greek athletes. Melt them. Let them trickle like lava that would cover and warm and decimate you. Go to an all-out war against obligation. Destroy memos, notes, electric sheets, reminders on the fridge. Get bitten more than once and don't ever be shy. Sleep with the first person to exit your threshold. Make love to the door, the doorsteps, the keyhole, the wound, the electric sockets and crowns. Char yourself. Write with the char chalk of your body. No, no, and no, and no, and no, and again no. Honor thy father and thy mother with a broom and dustbin. Honor the dust. Honor the raging virus. Honor the whiteness of your skin, your dentures and spectacles. Hold a one man demonstration for your advanced age. Summon the angel of death to your home. He is so tired. In dire need of rest. Go with him. Support him. Pluck out his eyes. Ascend with him to the cliffs of Dover. Convince him to jump but make sure he doesn't crash. You will eventually find out you need him still, that you can smile at each other with mouth vacant of useless tease, to join your bony hands and walk together like the first couple that has just discovered love. Question. All great writers have great writing influences. Who are some of yours and what makes them great in your eyes? Answer. First of all, thanks for the compliment, but I'm far from being great, and inasmuch as any great writers imprinted my writing, I don't know anything about it, perhaps in hindsight. The list is of these retrospectively acknowledged writers. Again, I start my answer. First of all, thanks for the compliment, but I'm far from being great. In and as, inasmuch as any great writer's imprinted my writing, I don't know anything about it, perhaps in hindsight. The list of uh, these res- retrospectively acknowledged writers is endless. We would need another podcast to name them all. So, uh, putting aside the main bulk of Israeli poets that I like and whose names wouldn't ring a bell for most of the listeners, I might mention for uh, as a foretaste st- uh, T.S. Eliot, Jacques Brevere, the author of the Song of Songs ascribed to King Solomon, may his soul rest in peace, Dylan Thomas, the Jewish-German expressionist poet Elze schuller Ellen Ginsberg, Bertolt Brecht, François Villon, Leonard Cohen, The Beatles, Paul Simon, John Donne, Federico Garcia Lorca, and so on. They have uh, very little in common with each other, except for two things that I cherish most. They are genuine, they are true to themselves. And writing poetry for them was not a matter of choice, it was an irresistible existential urge at any price whatsoever, like the boy in the next poem. Making an impression. Like a mischievous child pressing his hand in the concrete mold to make an impression. And the concrete clings to him and doesn't let go. Like a child wants to make an impression and doesn't let go in his despair until he tears himself from himself, from his hand. Question what do you see as being the role of the poet in modern-day society? Answer, I see the uh, role uh, in being the pride or pride of being, the lo- a low-tech against a tread of idealizing high-tech. Sorry, I'll start this answer again. His role is to be the pride of low-tech against a trend of idealizing high-tech. What this actually means is to develop those capacities that make us human. Imagination, the ability to create connections between disparate phenomena, appreciation of language not merely as a vehicle for practical and epistemological connections, but uh, as a means to describe feelings, relationships, fears, dreams, all that lies beyond the realm of conscious report in a world where robots digital contraptions uh, artificial intelligence replaces man replace man poetry is a fortitude of the essentially human that has no name Times square heat wave noon put on your flip-flops the sky's broken, you'll get hurt. The kid doesn't get broken metaphors, he'll get hurt. The cat will get infected, he will turn into a guru on the fifth, or into a handicap, whichever comes first. Meanwhile celestial angels are trampled on with earthly boots trying to pick up the pieces amidst the throngs of feet with their cups to go. To go, to go, go on, go on, go on in the square of times, the boss won't wait, nor will the king of beasts splattered on a skyscraper, blinding those who walk in great auroras, dissolving the throne of the King of Kings about to crush on their heads on their heads, while dangling with his last bit of strength, in silent screams and a menacing poker face on the hand atop Times Square. And now, at the MoMA, a festival of Basta Keaton and silent films. Question. Does knowing that your po- poems are published and out there in the world validate your being a poet or are you content knowing they are out of your system? Answer. Excuse me, but uh, this is a typically capitalist question that enrages me in every aspect. Although I am a capitalist, first um, I strongly protest against this current vogue to tag to label everything. Validating me as a poet inhibits me. I oppose being consumed or put into a drawer, labeled poet. I detest these binding definitions. I am a guy who occasionally writes poems. I like to share my poems. I love to get honest feedback. Feedback. I love to think that somewhere in the world there is someone who thinks, hey, he is writing about me, about my life, my relationships, my aspiration. That's good enough for me. And now I'm not happy to get my poems out of my system, as little as I myself would love to be torn from my system, which is more or less the same. The unforgettable line I sometimes fancy I am an unforgettable line in someone's autobiography, but the light always circumvents me like a run of a cat. We circumvent each other as reluctant acquaintances at the therapist's door, making light gestures of a, I don't exist and you never saw me. In fact, that's all what gnat said inside Titus had. Pardon, I I hate to interrupt your work, but the exit sign is off. Yes, that's where the temple is. No, 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 I have no matches. It's awfully dark in here. You never saw me. I don't exist. How do I get out of here? The light circumvents me. Burn something, so we see something. What's the point of making history? A run over cat. I sometimes fancy I am an unforgettable line in someone's autobiography, like a rare disease with a magical tropical name and incurable. Question. What do you hope readers get from encountering your poems? Answer. I believe that I answered this question. I just hope that my poems won't infect my readers. And speaking about infecting my readers, here is a poem written in the high days, heydays of the corona. Notes from the house of corona. Faint breath of air blow my way from nature's unreliable ventilator. A sun as pale as a nurse plunging unto the horizon after twelve hours without a moment's rest infuses drops of light from a depleting IV bag allocated to me from my dead neighbor who whistled his happy S when he sprayed me with viruses. As I write these lines, my hands, covered in white rubber gloves, remember resemble. The noble dead of Thomas Mann in Death in Venice strikes again, for which they are now broadcasting a promo live. I have decided to permanently discard of my body a virus ridden surface celebrating poems known for being plagued with invisible viruses on the connotation level. Question Do you think you were meant to be a poem? Sorry. Sorry. Again, question. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Answer. Uh, Oh, give me a break, please. I am no prophet designated by the law to carry his word. Just someone who loves writing for people I love, even if I don't know them, without any theological or mystical mission. I recall times when... Even as somebody presented me as a poet, I had to look back. Whom did you mean, by the way? Another question. You have written Rescue Mission. What's next for your creativity? What you call my creativity, I simply call my life. I see no difference between both. I keep on writing. I kept on writing even while Rescue Mission had been produced. I have enough material for another book in Hebrew, and English will follow suit sometime in the near future, as long as I and my dear ones stay healthy. But parallel to my literary work, I am a theater actor, a dramaturg, an editor of a theater journal, a lecturer, a drama translator, uh, translator, theater researcher, and to play with my grandchildren is also a part of my creative life. So I am yearning for some days of Swiss boredom, but my life is too interesting to grant me that. So uh, thank you again for inviting me to this podcast, and before taking my leave, allow me to read a poem to remind you that I am from the turbulent Middle East. It is dedicated to my father in eternal longing, and also to my translator into English, the unparalleled Natalie Feinstein. I offer a compromise. I offer a compromise. I shall grind myself so thinly that nothing but the dry wood remains until I shall be so shiny that the sun will be blinded by my sight and perforate through me your paper bodies. I offer a compromise. I shall stand in empty meeting rooms as an exclamation mark until the right spirits will fill in the right chairs, until papers will be exchanged, either signed or flight, as long as peace will penetrate the crazy bones of this house and lend relief to those entering its gates that gape upon them with a yelp and close on them with a gulp, like a crocodile before he rests in peace. I offer compromise. I stop a cab and offer to the driver. I buy a paper and offer to the seller. I walk with my dog and offer to his needs. I come to the shrink and offer to my complexes. I shall compromise and compromise until the compromise will be thinly ground until flour, until dust which which I will bake to face bread and to ice bread and to smiles bread and peace shall descend on my gates and tranquility in my bones munched in the dog's kennels and relieve the crocodile that swallowed me with the sun and a digestive. Thank you.